Thanks for downloading a 3CR podcast. 3CR is an independent community radio station based in Melbourne, Australia. We need your financial support to keep going. For more information and to donate online, go to 3cr.org.au. Now stay tuned for your 3CR podcast. And a very warm welcome back to Solidarity Breakfast. A left response to the major developments in capitalism. What they trade in is not wheat. They trade in famine. A little dose of revolutionary optimism. I think it's really important to sort of express solidarity globally. It really is a deal by corporations for corporations. The union forever defending our rights down with the black leg. Do you think the ABC's left wing? Don't listen to this program. Solidarity Breakfast, 7.30 to 9am Saturdays, 3CR, 8.55am, streaming and 3CR digital, podcast or audio on demand. And of course, the website, solidaritybreakfast.org.au. Solidarity forever! Good morning. Morning, Annie, and morning uh, all the listeners out there. Yes, it's uh, Saturday morning, and you know that because Solidarity Breakfast is on on 3CR. And this is Annie, and of course... Marcus. Marcus. Yeah, that's right. How are you going, Marcus? Yeah, I'm good, yeah. Yeah, yeah, it's but it's a it's uh, the weather's turned and uh, we're moving towards the summer period, but there's uh, action going on out in the uh, outer suburbs when it comes to chemical fo- uh, fires and uh, uh, waste management, and you're going to follow that up later today, aren't you? Ah, uh, yeah, we'll have a story about that about yeah the latest uh, developments from the Glass Recovery Services site out in Coolaroo, which we've spoken a bit about in the recent months. With yes. the announcement yesterday, the EPA is going to finally step in and take control and clean that site up. Been a couple of spot fires there in the past week. Uh, they also uh, spill into the Merlinson Creek, which was traced back to that company. So they're going to have their day in court, I think, on October the 31st. So I say, yeah, to the magistrate, throw the, throw the maximum penalty at that company. Yeah. Okay, we're going to talk to Sonia, who's uh, one of the Action Group people, and she's going to give us a lowdown on what's going on. Uh, we're, we're going to start the program off with uh, an event that happened uh, last Sunday, which was a conference for uh, the uh, Union Solidarity. Now, Union Solidarity is a group of uh, concerned people, uh, unionists, who've come together uh, to talk uh, the the uh, implication is that uh, lots of things are happening in a negative way for Australian workers and for the union movement. And uh, because people are reacting to those things, that there's not enough time to discuss the issues that uh, need to be dealt with. Uh, and uh, so uh, union solidarity was formed so that people could actually uh, work out strategies towards uh, the uh, change, positive change. And uh, so they meet at uh, Trades Hall here and there is actually a, a group in Sydney apparently and uh, it's probably going to start uh, hopefully uh, growing like top seed so across the country with people uh, investigating and talking with each other around uh, the issues. So it wasn't a talk fest. In a, it was more of a, a, a day where people were talking about uh, strategies, uh, where, where Union Solidarity was going to go on uh, from here. Uh, it was part of uh, helping the community pickets uh, down at uh, the MUA dispute, the Vict. Uh, dispute, 
Uh, he'd also had a um, community picket uh, um, element to the chemist warehouse. So a very practical approach to supporting workers in their uh, push for change but, uh, and positive outcomes in terms of uh, wages and conditions. But of course, the fight that's on is uh, bigger. You know, we've got things like uh, this ensuring integrity uh, legislation that's fronting federal, uh, at federal parliament, uh, a whole range of uh, nasty elements going on with uh, the uh, crowbarring off of the union movement from the ALP. I mean, not that that's happened, but you, the stuff that's been going on over this week, uh, Marcus, have you, you noticed with John Setka, the that business, that was an interesting development this week. Well, he's uh, thrown his membership of the ALP and after 15 years accusing the ALP, rightly so, of selling workers out in this country. Yeah, well, and also the business that was reported in the Stick Together show just then about uh, the free t- free t- trade deals. You know, you have to ask the question, free for whom? <laughs> <laughs> I mean, you know, talk about a piece of uh, publicity spin. But anyway, I went down to uh, the... Um, uh, a solidarity, a union solidarity uh, conference, and uh, I got the, some of the opening statements. So they started off with uh, Gwyneth Ev- Evans from the Meat Workers Union. Uh, she was her task was to look at uh, what what the issues are at the moment. So we'll have a hear from uh, Gwyneth. So our first speaker is Comrade Gwyneth Evans. She is Assistant Secretary of the Meat Workers Union, the AMIU. And she's speaking on a very small topic, which is, where are we at? Now, I have been asked to address the topic of where we're at. And with such a broad topic, I thought I'd say we're at 251 Queensbury Street, Carlton. (laughs) And leave it at that. And that is accurate, but it's probably too short. Alternatively, I could try to rewrite Das Kapital, but that would take too long. So I apologise for my scrappy address. It doesn't cover a quarter of what it should, or even a tenth, but here goes. So less less than two decades into the 21st century, and it's evident that capitalism has failed as a social system. The world is mired in economic stagnation and extreme inequality, accompanied by mass unemployment and underemployment, precariousness, poverty, hunger, wasted output and lives, and what can be called a planetary ecological death spiral. The digital revolution the greatest technological advance of our time, has rapidly mutated from being a promise of free communication and liberated production into new means of surveillance, control and displacement of workers. The institutions of liberal democracy are at the point of collapse, while fascism the rear guard of the capitalist system is again on the march, along with patriarchy, racism, imperialism and war. 
The conditions for an all-out war in the Middle East are riper now than at any time in recent memory because any development anywhere in the region can have ripple effects everywhere. Narrowly containing a crisis is fast becoming an exercise in futility. The US could be near the brink of war with Iran again after months of rising tension. A war with Iran would be disastrous, while further destabilising a region that's been consumed by conflict for years. And in a stunning announcement, the Trump administration gave the nod to a Turkish military incursion into the northeastern Syria. It's not as though Syria hasn't been had a bit of war of its own. Turkey launched the cross-border operation on October the 9th with a fence against the Kurds. On the 18th of October, a ceasefire was announced. The deal requires the Kurdish militias to withdraw from a safe zone, but that zone hasn't been defined. Then, to look at the idea of the climate crisis that we have. I, to look at that, I referred to one of the more conservative bodies on this issue, NASA, the National Aeronautics and Space Administration. What they identified as the vital signs of our planet at the moment are carbon dioxide in the atmosphere has risen by 412 parts per million. Global temperature has risen by 1.9 degrees Fahrenheit. Arctic ice is decreasing by 12% every decade. Ice sheets are disappearing by more than 413 gigatons every year. And the sea level is rising by 3.3 millimetres every year. That says enough about it. As well, where what we have is populist governments, and that's ranging from the US and the UK to India, Brazil, Hungary, Poland, the Philippines. They're all growing more extreme in power. Populist topics such as immigration, Islamophobia and anti-elitism come to dominate their political debate. Populism in power emboldens the previously marginal extreme right. Many far-right leaders flirt with the extremists. For example, Brazil's president, Jair Bolsonaro, praises the military government. And India's ruling Hindu, BJP, is close to the violent paramilitary group, the RSS. Poverty, wars, racism, and global warming lead to desperate movements of workers as refugees and as migrants. 
all of these impact disproportionately on women. Governments close borders, expelling refugees and using short-term visa systems to divide and conquer workers. In this, the Australian governments have led the way. In the workers' movement here, unions are already tightly regulated and have been increasingly so since the election of the coalition government in 2013. Although the Howard government's work choices was supposed to be wound back by the ALP after its election in 2007, only cosmetic changes have been made, paving the way for the current government to ramp up its anti-union busting agenda. Currently, it is difficult for unions to initiate any industrial actions having to jump through numerous complex regulatory hoops and the right to strike is virtually non-existent. The ability to organise in workplaces is also highly regulated. Failure to follow these regulations to the letter can result in heavy, hefty fines for individual workers, for union officials, as well as for the unions themselves. Now, the Ensuring Integrity Bill goes beyond holding the account of the so-called rogue union officials. Not only will the ability for union members to determine who leads their union be curtailed, but the union's ability to organise and campaign around workplace issues and bargaining will be hit hard. The clauses within the legislation are so broad that they're breathtaking. One particular one is the legislation that cites a person of significant interest. That person of significant interest has an issue with the behaviour of a union, then they can apply to the Registered Organisations Commission to take disciplinary action against that union. Disciplinary actions could include dismissing union officials, deregistering a union, placing a union into administration, restricting what a union can do with its own funds and resources, and altering a union's eligibility rules around what occupations and workplaces it has coverage over. Union officials who can be removed aren't only the paid officials, but they include rank and file members who are elected onto bodies such as committees of management to direct the unions. A person of interest in this context is an incredibly wide-ranging people. It can include anyone from the federal government right down to workplace managers who deal directly with union officials through bargaining and other matters of concern, and even an individual worker who is a member of a union. At best, this bill would waste union time and resources. And that's probably what it will do in many cases. 
with having to go through the rock and the courts to argue against employers and others who make applications against them. At worst, an ideologically driven government or other parties of significant interest would be able to effectively regulate specific unions to the point where we can't even advocate for or communicate with our own members, effectively regulating us out of existence. A trade union movement weakened further will leave wages and working conditions at the mercy of employers, putting workers in greater physical danger, particularly for those who work in hazardous industries where workplace safety is paramount and where it is only unions that ensure safe workplaces. Now, without going into either Ken or Colin's topics, I would have one further comment to make, and that is that we, as workers, need to get together. We need to band together and coordinate the biggest industrial campaign <coughs> to restore the right to strike, to abolish the ABCC and ROC, to raise the minimum wages to a, li to a living wage, reinstate penalty rates, and retrospectively reverse all anti-union legislation. Not to mention the need to refuse to be war, war fodder, to fight against racism, sexism and fascism and to reverse the ecological death spiral. Thank you. This Sunday, 27th of October, is being dubbed the Black Day, the day that India landed its troops into the capital of Kashmir, Shirinagar, in 1947. To protest this day and to protest the current human rights violations happening in Kashmir, local Melbourne Kashmiris are meeting this Sunday, the 27th of October, in Federation Square at 12pm and will be marching to the State Library of Victoria. There will be speeches from human rights activists, including Sue Bolton, Socialist Alliance member and City of Moorland councillor and local Kashmiris. Please come meet us at 12pm to protest against the lockdown, communication ban and human rights violation happening in Kashmir. For more information, please search Vigil for Kashmir on Facebook. Join us and stand with Kashmir. You're on, so, uh, you're on Solidarity Breakfast with Annie and Marcus and it's uh, Saturday morning here on 3CR and uh, we've been listening to Gwyneth, Gwyneth Evans who was one of the opening panel for the uh, Union Solidarity uh, meeting that they had, uh, conference that they had last Sunday and she was uh, uh, there to lay out what are the problems that uh, workers and unions in Australia uh have to uh, deal with and uh, there was uh, a f uh, one of the final speakers in that panel was Colin Long he's from uh, he's a sustainability officer in fact he's probably the first sustainability officer for a trades hall from Victoria Trades Hall it's all about uh, fair, uh, fair transition a fair transition uh, recognition that indeed climate change is a problem and uh, that workers should be at the table when the changes are actually pushed forward, uh, be part of the uh, um, structures that are thought through to uh, our new world. Uh, 
but uh, he was uh, given the task of looking at uh, solutions, you know, what what could be done about uh, the things that uh, Gwyneth had uh, laid out. And as he pointed out, the whole day was actually for discussing that sort of thing, but he gives a few pointers. So let's hear from Colin Long. I would have subtitled my talk, um, The Union Movement Should Not Fight for Legislated Workers' Rights. Um, I was going to say the union movement should not fight for workers' rights, but they don't, it's not, should not fight for legislated workers' rights, picking up on what uh, Ken just said. And there are two, I think there are two really bad things in Australia at the moment. Um, the decline of the Australian union movement has led to increased efforts to legislate for workers' rights, and both are bad things. And what do I mean by that? Just so, so I'll, I'll summarise some of what both the previous speakers have said and then come up with some suggestions at the end. I think, first of all, as Gwyneth said, the challenges we face uh, as, a use, as a union movement are really serious. They are not at a level that can... Uh, they are at a level that require fundamental change to the way unions operate and to the industrial relations system and, I guess, the socio-economic system more broadly. But the challenges, obviously, Gwyneth has gone into some of them. Uh, Globalisation, uh, extended supply change, chains, uh, the sophistication of corporate structures that unions have to confront, uh, the decline of the fiscal and monetary sovereignty of states. Uh, automation is a major challenge. I was um, just talking to some comrades earlier about uh, automation challenges uh, in the stevedoring industry, but also in the tra public transport industry, but all aspects of the economy do face some challenges for automation. People disagree about the extent of those challenges, but it is a real challenge. And of course, uh, climate change and economy-wide restructuring, uh, including, in fact, the introduction of new industries to deal with uh, the problem of global heating. So, for instance, you hear a lot of unions complaining about the non-union character of the renewable energy industry, but uh, my view is that no industry ever organised itself. Um, unions have to take a responsibility for organising industries, but there are new industries coming, and the next big industry I suspect that is coming is the renewable hydrogen industry, which presents lots of opportunities, but it also means we have to be thinking at a larger industry-wide scale to organise that industry. And none of those issues that I've enunciated there will be dealt with properly by workplace-level organising or enterprise-level bargaining. Uh, and to pick up on that and the point that Ken made, whilst uh, workplace, workplace militancy is a good thing for giving workers direct experience of collective action, it is actually no substitute for industry-wide union power. Uh, Enterprise-level bargaining does not take wages out of competition. In fact, it can uh, uh, exacerbate competition between firms around wages. Uh, many workplaces, and I've, someone said before that the average uh, metal worker or manufacturing worker will work, be working in a workplace of 20 workers or so in the future. So many workplaces are too small for meaningful enterprise level bargaining or militancy. Um, 
Driving up wages in one firm but not others in the industry puts pressure on that business and will often lead it to collapse. Uh, enterprise level bargaining and militancy leads unions to try to protect particular work practices in individual firms but risks losing the ability to exercise control over productivity gains at an industry level. And we see that a lot in, I think, in Australian trade unions where there is considerable uh, anxiety over the introduction of new uh, technologies, but it's very hard to manage that at an individual firm level. And the benefits that might be obtained from new technologies are not uh, garnered by unions at an industry level. <coughs> All that leads me to conclude, and I think Ken has also concluded and others, that union rights are more important than legislated worker rights. But unfortunately in Australia, we've been heading for some time down the path of trying to increase legislated worker rights, largely in response to the weakening of trade unions. As, Len as Ken said, legislated worker rights accrue to workers as individuals, not as part of a collective that won those rights through collective action. Legislated rights apply to all workers, whether they are union members or not. That undermines the whole purpose of unions. Uh, the same, of course, can be said for enterprise bargaining agreements. Uh, all workers benefit from the work of unions and negotiating them without necessarily having to be a member. And legislated rights are easily broken or ignored by employers if there are no powerful unions to enforce them. Uh, and we only have to look at the rampant scale of uh, wage theft in the hospitality industry in Australia which um, s relatively small actions to enforce the law against um, some firms does not, uh, un does not change the fundamental uh, nature of the theft going on in that industry. We shouldn't be exploring legislative changes to enforce, to, to create individual rights for individual workers, but legislative change is important to allow unions to do their jobs. If you examine uh, labour rights in the OECD nations and compare, this is an index of labour rights created by, of all things, um, the uh, World Economic Forum, so not a union-friendly organisation. But So you compare labour rights uh, compared to, and that, that's really union rights, not individual labour rights, with union density, and it shows a very clear relationship between a high level of union rights and union density, only odd one out being France, which is an odd industrial system, of course. But Australia's, um, Australia ranks 22 out of 26 OECD nations in that table for labour rights, and our union density is 20 out of 26. The US is 23 out of 26 for labour rights and 23 out of 26 for union density. And of course, probably no surprise that the higher ranking nations on both scores are, are um, Scandinavian countries. Uh, achieving change to the system in Australia obviously requires industrial action, and I absolutely agree that getting uh, the right to strike uh, and, and take industrial action is vital. But we also have to take, um, we do require political and industrial campaign uh, combined. And I think Ken is right that the union movement needs to develop uh, an overarching industrial campaign to advance 
this cause. The, the, the legislative demands that we require to strengthen the rights of unions means improved right of entry provisions. A lot of this we'll get to talk about in the workshops later. A proper right to strike um, in general, but also around improved processes around, you know, reduction in red tape around secret, secret ballots and notice periods and all that sort of thing. Abolition of the ABCC, the ROC and similar organisations. We need to talk about anti-free rider rules so that people don't get the benefits that, that unions uh, earn or win without having to join a union. We need an, in, an end to the industrial torts, which actually still exist in Australia and which is why under what means that the MUA is being sued for $100 million by VICT. Uh, and we need a greater ability to conduct bargaining at an industry level so that wages can be taken out of competition, technological changes and productivity improvements can be harnessed for broad worker benefit, uh, and unions can be proactive in shaping industry-wide developments, not reactive to threats to individual workers or groups of workers in individual firms. I think um, we also need to be honest and have a pr honest discussion in our own union, uh, our own movement, about the need for unions to make changes as well. Um, and that means we need to think about uh, industry-wide organising, uh, much more effort in industry-wide organising rather than focusing on um, uh, firm level organising, although obviously firm level organising is still important. I think we need a greater international focus and a supply, a focus on supply chain organising because that is the scale at which the economy operates. Um, I think really importantly we need more strategic and long-term thinking. I think we've lost a lot of the ability for strategic long-term thinking in the movement and we have a fairly um, anti-intellectual streak in the Australian Union movement that prevents thinking uh, theory backing up practice and uh, long-term strategic thinking. And importantly, and what I'd like to see, uh, I suppose this is a, an instance of this industry level thinking that, or planning, um, in industrial planning that Ken's talking about. So I'd like to see some big economy-wide claims that the whole union movement could get behind, such as a claim for a 30-hour week, which would enable unions to collaborate across industries and transform the discourse about work itself. Would also, I think, have the benefit of um, changing, potentially changing the discourse around the unemployed and go some way, we could, if we thought about it carefully, go, way to, go some way to um, stopping the punitive approach to the unemployed. And that, uh, such a claim for a 30-hour week would also have significant environmental benefits, so we'd be able to link up with the environmental movement uh, and reduce other costs, which have been in the uh, media recently, such as costs associated with con congestion, so we would also have some implications for infrastructure planning and so on. So we'd actually be able to make a, a claim that would unite our movement with uh, other movements and help build alliances and um, make us, the union movement, much more relevant again. And it would require serious industrial action and um, serious collective action across industries and across the economy to achieve. And I think that would be very important in um, helping to build a way forward for our movement.
From October the 28th to the 31st, some of the worst climate criminals will be gathering for the International Mining Conference, IMARC, at the Melbourne Convention Centre. Blockade IMARC is an activist alliance committed to putting a stop to the mass destruction caused by extractive industries across the globe and the harm they cause to communities and ecosystems. We need your help to be part of this blockade. Find out how at blockadeimark.com or check out our Facebook page, Blockade IMARC, a 3CR supporter. And we're back on 3CR Solidarity Breakfast. And Marcus, you've got our guests on. Yeah, we're joined by Sonia Rutherford from uh, the Broadmeadows Progress Association. Welcome to Solidarity Breakfast, uh, Sonia. Uh, thank you. Thank you, Marcus. So, uh, as was reported in the Northern Leader just two weeks ago, uh, public open land out in Broadmeadows uh, will be transferred into private hands for uh, elite sport use. Yes, 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 that, that's correct. Uh, what would you like me to uh, explain the history and our concerns? Uh, yeah, so as I understand the Progress Association, they were unaware of some of the council's plans which included to build a road through Seabrook Reserve. But yeah, tell us about the concerns. Well, well, it's two aspects, actually. One is the uh, fact that we now know that a big private business, which the rugby league is like other sports, uh, now has been given... Uh, community land, parkland, uh, for their uh, for their private uh, use, uh, and that is of particular concern. And I know it's of concern with people in the Maribyrnong area, where they're at soccer. That's uh, one uh, particular concern that we have. Um, but the and the other concern, which I will explain more in detail. The other concern, of course, is that the process that the council uh, went through to arrive at this decision was secretive and was behind closed doors and completely unknown to residents. Uh, A a matter of democracy, as it were, uh, which uh, the association will be taking up uh, with the, uh, well, have, with the local uh, minister for local government. Um, maybe if I just explain what what occurred uh, in uh, April this year, council decided that they were going to uh, upgrade a community park called Seabrook Reserve. It's an old park, been there as a um, open space uh, in the 1950s for the large housing uh, community, sorry, housing commission uh, houses. Uh, in the in the in the area, so at April uh, onwards there was a consultation process, uh, which entailed a document and plans that we all saw, the community that is, uh, and it entailed the upgrading of uh, the football oval into two rugby pitches, which was you know to, to be expected, but could also be used by cricketers and other people for local. A team. It also involved the sale of land, parkland, around the perimeter of the reserve for housing. Um, and uh, the residents... Engaged... Before you go on there, you know when a council takes land or sells land uh, for some other use, <clears throat> they're supposed to actually provide the same amount of land 
for public use somewhere else. Did they do that? No, 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 I haven't heard of that. All I know is that when they sell public land, it must be used in that area, the money that they raised. I didn't know that. Uh, well, there should be, there's generally <laughs> a belief that, uh, that land has, there has, it's land use. They have to have, uh, uh, consideration around, uh, I mean, there's open spaces for a purpose around uh, built-up areas. Oh, well, we'll take that into account, Annie. Thank you very much. Yeah, go on with your story. Anyway, um, so the whole consultation process around this plan, which entailed those aspects only, and the result was that the residents, uh, 620, signed a petition saying uh, that no sale of the park for housing, but to go and continue with the idea of upgrading. And we applied to the state government's new uh, proposals to allow actually uh, uh, money mm. for local councils to update... Um, uh, Facilities. Old, ..old parks. Yeah. And we wrote uh, to council and said, well, look, why don't you um, come with us? Because we wrote to the minister, found the details... And on the 13th of September, the mayor was said uh, a letter to us saying that they were looking at our suggestion and they would um, uh, look further into us. And we presumed that they would then contact us and we would discuss it. Mm. And so, uh, what would it be on the 20th? Oh, that was the 13th of September. The, on the um, Friday the 20th, um, we suddenly found that the whole deal... Was being uh, had been done arrived at with an NRL to take over what will be half almost half of the parkland. <gasps> That's so outrageous. For a, uh, what they call a Victorian rugby league state centre. And uh, Seabrook Reserve has long been used by the local community and local sporting clubs. The former Broadmeadows Football Club these days, a, a local rugby uh, yes, club, Northern, plays at the reserve, yes. Northern Thunder. Will the community? still have access to the facilities yes. or will it be completely uh, for the pri- private elite sport use? Well, if, if you look at the actual uh, centre itself, what they, uh, the description of the Victorian uh, Rugby League State Centre, it's to be a centre for the National uh, Rugby League Victoria for Na- Melbourne Storm, a touch football Victoria, the National Women's uh, um, NRL uh, Centre, they anticipate that it will have well training camps for interstate and regional uh, players. They anticipate possibly 10,000 players per year will be facilitated in the area. There will be level, state-level matches, tournaments. Uh, the junior, it will be a centre for the junior uh, elite programs, uh, national championships uh, and the state of origin teams. So it's a pretty big concern, and they were given $12 million by the state government to set it up. So, And we don't know for how long this lease would be. We know nothing. We don't know what the council has agreed about the lighting, the continuous use, the parking they're going to extend and um, acquire parking around the council is, uh, to uh, land for their parking. They're going to build a new road right through the parkland and we, as uh, we do not know, uh, and have not been consulted at all. We don't know what. Who, who the are these councillors? Well, councillors, councillors, in actual fact, are the ones that rubber stamp. 
what we we're finding that this is an example of the what the results of the corporatization of local government uh, municipal councils. Um, they're, they're a business concern. And Who's the, decision, the CEO of the, of uh, your council area? Um, <laughs> uh, I, I just slipped my name, but anyway. Dom- Dominica Sola. Yes, that's it, that's it. Thank you, I just slipped my name, so my mind, sorry. I wonder what yes, salary he's on. Uh, well, I don't know what salary he's on, and that doesn't alter the fact whether he had a low or a high salary. What it is is that the decision-making has been removed from residents and even to a degree, I think, to a large degree, from councillors. And the decisions are being made by the officers and administration. Um, And their their method of um, arriving at new proposals is they make a, a decision, they announce it, and then they defend it. Instead of uh, that's a, a method of um, administration that is uh, it's called DAD actually, um, and unfortunately that is the, the, what we are up against. Um, but it, anyway, nevertheless, um, we're not leaving it go, and we've written to the minister that this method of consultation, this lack of democracy for residents and control over what happens in our area. It has to be challenged because only further abuses will occur. And Broadmeadows, so, obviously, uh, one of the most disadvantaged regions in Australia. Very high unemployment. Will opportunities be provided for, for the youths in the community to have access to this um, centre of excellence, what they're calling? Well, it is a centre of excellence. Uh, it requires, for instance, they say as a start, 20 staff, uh, facilities for 20 staff, a large pavilion, um, high standard pitches. Um, which you would understand, you would, you know. Now, why, why can't, why do they have to use public land when they're a commercial enterprise? Well, it's probably the same reason, reason that they're doing it all over the state. If you look at any council, uh, the, the state, the local councils follow basically state government um, uh, policies and, uh, and desires. And the, um, the, the request or the inferred request is that councils and actually look at what available land they have for housing or for facilities such as what uh, is proposed here, these sporting facilities. So it's encouraged from the state government level down to the local councils. And council laws to stand against it do have to be very understanding and pretty brave. And what's uh, Frank Maguire, the state member for Broadmeadows? What's what's his response to the Progress Association? Well, he would he takes the line the same as the Dominic and the uh, councillors and the mayor that this is a grand um, prestige development in the area. It will raise the um, image of, of uh, Broadmeadows, um, and uh, it's to be congratulated and um, and. Uh, Supported. Why do they want that particular? Let's get back to that bit of land. Uh, uh, One of the things that's interesting about the uh, uh, land grab for uh, the soccer down at Footscray is Mm. that it's right beside the river and there's this, you know, they like a view quite clearly. Mm. Uh, Is there something about this uh, public land that's particularly beauteous? Uh, From 
From our discussion at the council meeting with the NRL representatives that were speaking at the council meeting when the decision was made, it's the airport. Ah, you see, there you it's go. basically an interstate uh, uh, training area as well as regional. It's close to the regional. Uh, the well, anyway, they stated the closeness to the airport is a key attraction. Right. And the Hume City Council is going to contribute millions of dollars, as was reported in the in the paper. I mean, what's yeah. NRL Victoria going to contribute back to the community? Uh, what 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 the uh, amount of money that, that we're allowed to know about is the twelve million that the state government's given to NRL, and it's five million that um, our council have suddenly found they can make available to do supportive things. Um, such as car parking, um, certain amounts of car, you know, car parking, the new road, the acquiring of land. Um, so overall, that's 17 million, which means I should imagine the lease is quite large. But council, what makes us very angry, is for decades we've been asking for the upgrading of this reserve, and council couldn't find a dollar. Now all of a sudden, in a space of what? Uh, a few months, they've suddenly found five million of our of our rates to support this uh, particular program, and they justify it on the basis that they're now still going to sell the land. And the things that they hypocritically do uh, in the council meeting, they said they consulted the residents, but they forgot to say that we were consulted on an entirely different plan to the one that was secretly. Um, passed and being and, and leased because initially and they, was it uh, the John, it was the Johnson Street Reserve yes. was earmarked for the Centre of yes. Excellence. Yes, Johnson Street in 2018 April was acclaimed and decided to be the spot, but something about that area the NRL said was unsatisfactory. So obviously they were going with their little dowry of 12 million uh, to some other council, and uh, our officers must have been alarmed and looked around for where they could possibly uh, put them and have actually jammed it, to be honest, very crowdedly, decided there. And the other thing about the sale of the houses, land for houses, it goes ahead. And uh, but they, the council said, look, it's OK, this is the old swimming site. We're now going to put the house sale, uh, land for housing development. And they said it's unused. No one used it. But they forgot to tell us and people that it's had a cyclone fence around the old swimming site. We're not allowed to use it. So hypocrisy has also infiltrated the whole of this argument to uh, verify uh, what is a secret private deal. The disrespect for the uh, local residents uh, is uh, is shameful. It's shameful, it's deceptive, and it's alarming, the process. What what um, what are you guys uh, intending to do? I mean, you've said you've uh, well, yeah. Well, you see, first of all, we're, we're, uh, in the in the area, um, uh, we have uh, about fifty percent of the housing, uh, of which there's a large number of unit construction, are uh, rented. So they're a moving uh, traffic. The people who use the um, parkland and um, well used are walkers. Mm. Cyclists and dog walkers, uh, and they 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 don't know because how do we let them know? That's right. Um, and the other side, we have a lot of different nationalities. 
uh, that don't, don't necessarily read the English documentation. When council can't, uh, um, went about their first consultation, they did it very well, and it was a good that they did it, but they got five and six people from the residents because it's, uh, of the circumstances uh, that people are not aware or their transit um, and that the people who use the park and also the casual cricket players and the casual other users are not con con uh, able to be contacted. So it, it, we're vulnerable and they're taking advantage of that vulnerability, but we still have a very small, that, not small, about 25 uh, people in the area that have formed a, a subcommittee to look at this whole issue. And if we uh, change subject, the Progress Association's been vocal in recent times in regards to the uh, spate of chemical fires and the, and the problems associated with that in Broadmeadows, and uh, yesterday there was a, a positive development from the EPA. Uh, yes, if you want to change subjects, yes. <laughs> but before we do, could I just say that anyone's listening, we're, uh, uh, to, to, to contact us or to write to the Minister for uh, Local Government, which is Adam uh, Somurek, I think pronounced, because uh, we're asking him to meet uh, the Progress Association and residents to discuss this issue. This is a key call that we are now putting out and that we need the support of others to have that meeting with the local government to discuss the whole aspect of this debacle. So getting on to the, what you raised about the glass uh, storage, or it's really glass storage, recycling, yes, uh, what has, has happened is that the glass storage area is a mountain of glass. It's not a recycling process. hasn't been, as is the case of other SKM uh, sites. But within that big pile there's a lot of uh, organic matter uh, because the glass is not clean. And that has be, uh, um, creates hot spots, they say. In other words, it develops heat and it gives off smoke and, uh, and poisonous fumes. And that's, um, it, it's happening continuously and we've had small fires due to this over the last few months and another one just this uh, last week. So the, the, um, this particular glassworks is owned by the same family that owned SKM that is now in uh, receivership. Uh, and uh, so the, the, the EPA have said, well, they, this continual hot spot and, and smouldering and giving off of smoke and fumes has to be addressed. The um, company, uh, the owners of that glasswork, Italiano family, uh, are not addressing it, um, and so therefore they're taking it over and will now, um, as we understand, um, organise for the removal of that glass with its continual problem uh, and presumably uh, charge the Italiano family uh, for the cost that that will involve. That is a positive uh, move, uh, but there are other issues, uh, and we welcome it, and we welcome a more continuous contact with EPA and the local community, um, which is a good move. Uh, before we leave, Sonia, uh, and we should keep an eye on what's going on with uh, the reserve. Hopefully, Marcus will uh, keep in contact with you. Uh, can you tell us and our listeners if people want to get in contact with the Progress Associ uh, Association uh, 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 around the issues that are going on here? Uh, how would they do that? 
Well, uh, they could, if they're listening, um, the uh, Progress Association's email address is jsrutherford at dot au. How do you and spell our phone r- number? Hmm? How do you spell Rutherford? R U T H E R F O R D. Good. Rutherford. Rutherford yeah. at Primus dot I Promise. I Promise dot com. Dot AU. And our phone number. Yep. Is nine three zero nine six two nine six. Good. Okay. Thank you very much for talking to us this morning, and good Thanks. luck. And thank you very much for Thanks, the opportunity Sonia. to discuss it. A weak solidarity, Bricky Team listener, when the Socialist Party has announced it has difficulty with many aspects of free trade agreements with Indonesia, Hong Kong and Peru, particularly the retention of clauses allowing True Blue Aussie to be sued by great corporations if True Blue Aussie passes laws that they they deem cost them profits, um, like increasing the minimum wage or protecting the environment from their profit-making activities. Uh, so you'll oppose the legislation we assumed. The Socialist Party will support this legislation. Supremo and would-be big Supremo Anthony Albin Uzi highlighted his Socialist credentials, which currently sit somewhere south of zero. This will confuse the caring business class into thinking we're on its side. This will confuse the government into thinking we've abandoned altogether any principles we still had. It's a brilliant tactic. And the evil unions? The Socialist Party supports the trade union movement to the hilt. But they oppose this. They say it will lead to workers being exploited, wages suppressed, almost to the hilt. And they will benefit when a socialist government under my dynamic leadership is elected. And Anthony, the government has now announced it will legislate to lock in wages and conditions on major projects for the life of the project, preventing workers taking industrial action, preventing agreements expiring. It will give great corporations certainty and eliminate costly industrial disputes, the government says. The evil unions say they will oppose the legislation, so presumably you will too. The Socialist Party will move important amendments to this legislation to make it better. Uh, Better for whom? Uh, Better for the Socialist Party to uh, get away with voting for it. But if the government rebuts your amendment, then we will vote for it. Obviously, we will have no choice but to vote for it. Well, one just possibly top-of-the-head thought choice would be not to vote for it and lose all credibility with the true blue Aussie people. We must be a responsible Her Most Gracious Majesty's opposition. Well, they're certainly being responsible for every bit of caring business class party legislation. The caring business class relations minister, Christian Porter of Profits, told the week that was it was essential to prevent agreements expiring mid-project allowing, and when he puts it this way, we can comprehend the major threat to civilization as we know it, workers accessing protected industrial action to apply maximum pressure to employers for wages and conditions. Good God, Christian, workers wanting wages and conditions? Sadly, yes. We all know workers on these projects already receive ridiculously inflated exorbitant pay packets crippling their poor caring employer. 
So obviously you also oppose the ridiculously inflated exorbitant pay packets the CEOs and senior management of these poor caring employers many, many, many times more than those workers receive. And they earn every cent of it. It's no easy job keeping the greed and avarice of evil unions and evil workers under control. Are you worried the Socialist Party will oppose the bill? It'll be a first if they do. It would be irresponsible to oppose this essential legislation. And Mr. Albinuzzi is proving to be very responsible. Oh, well, that's really good news. Not so good news. Our esteemed airlines have called on the government to call time on monopoly airports, complaining they are ripping off, well, price gouging, they say, including not just the public paying exorbitant prices for just about everything, but themselves as the airports charge them whatever they feel like charging them. Although we can be sure their major concern is the ripping off of the general public. The impact on their own profits would be very secondary. But price gouging, something we'd never have thought possible when the government privatised the airports to give us the benefits of a super-efficient, privately-owned monopoly. And any wonder the airlines are upset, because ripping off price gouging would be such anathema to them. Like a few weeks ago during the footy finals when prices to interstate venues tripled and quadrupled overnight. There's ripping off and ripping off price gouging and price gouging, they explained. Sadly for them, the workers must be more productive con mission also came out this week and declared the ripping off price gouging did not require government intervention. The current ultralight regulation regime was working a treat and the privatised monopolies agreed. Is it working a treat, they chorused, or is it working a treat? On that super-efficiency of the private sector vis-à-vis -vis the inefficient, bloated hand of the public sector, another esteemed practitioner, the worst pack bank, has complained that government inquiries into why the banks didn't pass on the rate cut. We agree. Who needs an inquiry to work that one out? Anyway, worst pack says it could cost them their double-A rating. Very interesting. What's very interesting, that the super-efficient have a double-A rating, yet the inefficient, bloated-hand public sector has a triple-A rating. Surely it couldn't mean the inefficient, bloated is more efficient, could it? The Modesty of the Week Award to US of the UN of the US of the World Big Supremo Donald Trump or the Poor, well, he could we could bestow without the award in perpetuity because we can't imagine him ever losing it. This week for, after evil Russia negotiated a deal with good loves, liberty, freedom and democracy Turkey over northern Syria, seems silly to consult the Syrians on these things, and as the Turkish train killers passed the US of train killers going the other way, Donald then announced, well, twittered, that the whole thing was down to him and only him. The negotiating parties had nothing to do with it. Donald, your Modesty of the Week perpetual award is on its way. Speaking of great corporations, which we sort of were, the collective of great mainstream media corporations is to be congratulated on its Your Right to Know campaign, arguing governments restrict them, telling us what we need to know. What 
selfless social commitment, sacrificing pages of potential income, but it's the least we'd expect from Lord Rupert of Wapping and the other media barons of business. And we know how much we can rely on what the mainstream media wants us to know. Like the Lord Rupert of Wapping sin report this week of the death of famous Cuban ballerina Alicia Alonso, pointing out she was one of the earliest members of the American Dance Company in New York in the 40s and 50s. She was recognised the world over for the stylized beauty of her choreography and was named Prima Ballerina Absoluta, the rarely bestowed honour in dance. But then in the final sentence, how all that paled against her most heinous fault, her heinous evil, and defending our right to know just how heinously evil she was. But Alonso also drew criticism, it said, for her long-time support of Castro's government. Oh no, what a blot on her otherwise brilliant career. Doesn't tell us who she drew criticism from. We obviously don't need to know that, but we can assume it was Lord Rupert himself. Cuban supporters tell me that heinous, e- that heinous evil was the very reason she was so revered in her own country that she returned from the US of to support her homeland. Just yesterday, the Lord Rupert of Wapping Sin reporting on that suppository of, sorry, a repository of truth, the Institute of Public Very, Very Private Affairs, attacking local councils which pass resolutions that the government signed the International Prohibition of Nuclear Weapons Treaty, the Institute of, declaring the universal truth, these councils are more interested in defence than rubbish collection. And rubbish is the last thing we'd expect from the Institute of, or the Lord Rupert of Wapping Sin for that matter. And while they tell us how critical they are to democracy, the fourth estate in defence of our freedoms, and of their own freedoms like making a fortune, they don't need to run a campaign that equally contributes to their most important role. Your right not to know. For while we need to know that supporting the Cuban government, supporting your evil homeland or opposing the nuclear industry is a no-no, there are many, many things we don't need to know and they must, in the interest of all of us, determine what we do and what we don't need to know. And the most important thing we don't need to know is the truth. It's bad for us. Well, the truth, the truths that don't matter. Unlike truths that do matter, like one truth we do need to know at the moment is what the great and powerful and young and beautiful will be eating and drinking and wearing, enjoying the great corporation's hospitality at Flemington next week. We haven't yet seen daily pickies with descriptions of the great fashion houses' designs for what the Extinction Rebellion and other irresponsible people will be wearing during the blockade of the world's possible meeting this week. Clearly that falls under the your right not to know category. But we can guarantee the sort of coverage that will get our right to know just how disruptive these bludgers are. They're bludging bound to be condemned. Tut tutted. Weren't they just dreadful and no dress sense whatever by the great and powerful and young and beautiful in the hospitality marquees. But finally, Bad news, listener. I can feel your sense of excitement, but no, we have no intention of blacking out large chunks of the week that was and reducing it to half a dozen words. Bad luck. Good morning. From October the 28th to the 31st, some of the worst climate criminals will be gathering for the International Mining Conference, IMARC, at the Melbourne Convention Centre. 
Blockade IMARC is an activist alliance committed to putting a stop to the mass destruction caused by extractive industries across the globe and the harm they cause to communities and ecosystems. We need your help to be part of this blockade. Find out how at blockadeimark.com or check out our Facebook page, Blockade IMARC, a 3CR supporter. You're back on Solidarity Breakfast with Annie and Marcus. And uh, we're going to move on quickly because uh, we're going to finish off with a fairly long piece. It comes from the IPAN conference, which was uh, on uh, earlier in the year. And it's uh, Vince Scapatura, who is an expert on American bases and uh, the politics of America across uh, the world in terms of its military presence. And what he's talking about is uh, the stoush going on between uh, America and China and uh, where Australia fits into that jigsaw puzzle. And he goes through uh, at the beginning uh, a variety of stuff around uh, giving people an idea of uh, what the landscape is and then he talks about what he thinks is going to happen. Okay, so to get an insight into where conventional elite thinking is on the US alliance and where that might take us into the future in terms of securing peace and sovereignty, which is the theme for tonight, I want to begin by reflecting on an edited book that was published earlier this year and which canvassed the views of a number of prominent strategic thinkers in Australia on the topic of the future of Australia's defence policy. The contributors to the book included prominent academics, uh, members of think tanks, uh, former defence officials and foreign policy advisers, uh, former Uh, defence minister, you know, a good kind of cross-section of the strategic elite in Australia on matters of uh, defence and national security. The book is called After American Primacy, and it's a very intriguing title and topic because very rarely do we see any in-depth discussion or debate in Australia about what could or should Australian defence policy be in a regional setting without the US as the dominant power. Now, dedicated, as it were, to imagining what the different possibilities might be for Australian defence policy in the absence of American primacy, it is not once contemplated that Australia's security environment might improve if the US were to step back from Asia and Australia were to disentangle itself from the US alliance. Under every scenario envisioned, a diminished American presence in the region, even only in part, is viewed as something that will inevitably and critically undermine Australian security. This is the alliance orthodoxy that enjoys broad and deep support among Australia's national security elite and is enthusiastically promoted by the pro-US lobby. The possibility that US militarisation of the region might be slightly antagonising to China, the hypocrisy in assuming that the US can surround China with military bases and project power right up to its shores, while even the thought of an equivalent scenario where even a single Chinese base in Latin America would provoke hysteria in the US... The idea that great power tensions might be reduced and great power conflict avoided should the US undertake even a partial withdrawal from the region to accommodate China's security concerns is never entertained. There are only two choices laid before us by Australia's strategic and defence studies elite in an Asia-Pacific region where China is contesting American primacy. The continuation of an American-led order, but with much greater support provided by key allies like uh, Japan, South Korea and Australia, or Chinese hegemony. And of course, because no one wants to live under Chinese hegemony, the only option really presented to us is to double down on entrenching the American military presence in Asia and doubling down on the US alliance. And that means greater dependence on the US 
and a much larger Australian Defence Force because the Americans, especially under the more transactional Trump administration, is expecting that allies will do more to support US influence in Asia. In fact, just a couple of days ago, the new US ambassador to Australia, Arthur Culverhouse, called on Australia to play a great power leadership role in the region and that the US expects the natural course for Australia going forward is to be even more supportive of US policy in the Pacific. And that's exactly where I think we're headed if the alliance orthodoxy goes unchallenged and the pro-US lobby in Australia gets its way. A report released last month by the Australian Strategic Policy Institute advocates for Australia to adopt a new doctrine of forward defence in depth, projecting ADF forces deep into Southeast Asia and the Southwest Pacific in line with US desires for greater leadership and burden sharing by its allies. The 2018 agreement by the US, Australia and Papua New Guinea to jointly develop the Lombrum Naval Base at Manus Island is envisioned in this, by those who advocate this new forward defence strategy to become a key forward operating base to project power deep into the South China Sea and into the first island chain of China's defence perimeter. Now, there is a challenge to this alliance orthodoxy that has emerged recently in the context of the uh, rise of China, but it's not the kind of cha uh, challenge that is going to take us to a more peaceful and secure Australia. And here I'm referring to the challenge put forth by the likes of uh, Professor Hugh White, who just published a book on an alternative defence policy for Australia, which argues that Australia is going to have to arm itself to the teeth and perhaps even obtain nuclear weapons uh, in a future where the US isn't the most powerful military force in uh, Asia. This is the long-standing and deep-seated uh, security anxieties of living in Asia without a great and powerful friend that's kind of rearing its ugly head again. Uh, in fact, most strategic elites more or less agree with White's analysis that Australia would have to dramatically increase its defence spending in the absence of the US alliance and American primacy in Asia, even though White is kind of viewed as a little bit of a radical. Uh, the reason why White is a bit of an outlier is not because he thinks independence from the US is preferable, um, but because he believes it's inevitable or highly likely that the US will lose the great competition, power competition in Asia, China will replace it as the regional hegemon, um, whereas most others, including the Australian government and opposition, have faith that the US will remain the dominant military power in Asia with the help of allies like us, uh, even if it's somewhat more constrained by China, and thus they see no need to embark on a fiercely armed and independent Australian uh, defence policy. But this really is the limits of the so-called debate on Australian defence policy in the US alliance. Either we're headed for a more militarised Australia and greater dependence on the US with all the consequent risks that entails for a disastrous war in Asia, uh, or we are destined for even greater levels of militarisation and a fortress Australia mentality living under China's hegemony. Okay, so at this point I think it's time for a bit of a reality check. Um, I happen to agree that the US even under a Trump administration, is highly, likely to, uh, highly unlikely to abdicate its leadership position in Asia, leaving China to fill the vacuum. There was a, a lot of concern early on by some elements of the pro-US lobby in Australia that Trump's America-first approach might critically reduce Australian military presence in the region and undermine American leadership in Asia. It was quite revealing, actually, to hear the anxiety and condemnation of the pro-US lobby that accompanied Trump's announcement last year to suspend uh, provocative military exercises in South Korea, exercises that were intended to demonstrate the capacity to decapitate the North Korean leadership and overthrow the Kim regime. Following the logic of the alliance orthodoxy, 
the prospect of a peace treaty on the Korean Peninsula and the evaporation of the North Korean threat would be dangerous for Australia and against our long-term interests because it might lead to a weakening of America's military presence in Asia, to, which is going to be necessary to confront China. Uh, this is how wedded Australian national security elites are to US hegemony. Nevertheless, much of that concern uh, has since subsided, although not entirely, uh, with the release of several official policy documents by the Trump administration that clearly emphasise the need for the US to prepare for great power competition with China and to enlist the support of allies towards that end. The first was the 2017 National Security Strategy, uh, but secondly and more importantly was the 2018 National Defence Strategy, and the final one was the Indo-Pacific Strategy Report, which was released just last month by the US Department of State. All of these policy documents clearly indicate that the US is doubling down on its efforts to maintain its influence in Asia. They declare, for example, that the US officially sees China as a political, economic and strategic rival and a revisionist regime intent on undermining the international order. And they commit the US to enhance relationships with allies in the region and a greater forward military presence to confront that challenge and sustain American influence into the future. The documents are a prescription for further militarization of the Indo-Pacific, signaling the desire for a more dispersed military presence with US rotational forces in Australia as a model for what's to come. Indeed, Australia is envisaged as a key partner in, the US effort, in this US effort, partly because we are less vulnerable to Chinese missile attacks in comparison to large American bases in Japan, South Korea and Guam. These documents, in fact, signal a continuity in US defence planning under the Trump administration. They build on what was dubbed the Pentagon's lily pad strategy, first envisaged by the George W. Bush administration, which foresaw the need for a worldwide network of smaller and more flexible forward operating bases to give the US military the ability to react with remarkable speed to developments anywhere on Earth. President Obama's pivot to Asia signified that the Asia-Pacific region was going to be the centre of this lily pad strategy, but with a more explicit signal to contain China. 60% of US naval and air force assets shifted their base of operations to the region. Greater access arrangements to airfields and naval bases were negotiated with several countries. And of course, there was the announcement of up to 2,500 US Marines in Darwin. In other words, Despite the unorthodox rhetoric and methods of the Trump administration, the objectives of US foreign policy are not that radically different from the past. Trump is certainly more transactional and unilateral in his approach to allies as he eschews multilateral forums and institutions, but he is not a pacifist isolationist. He's more a unilateral nationalist, and he has engaged in a dramatic expansion of the US military budget to prepare for the great power rivalry with China, which his administration has explicitly committed itself to. So the question of whether the US has the resolve or intent to stay engaged in Asia, I think, is quite clear. The other question, however, is does the US have the military and economic wherewithal to remain the dominant power in the region? And a lot of what animates the so-called China debate in Australia are these wild predictions about America's decline or relative decline in comparison to China. And I want to spend the next few minutes explaining why I think this assessment is wrong and is being used as a pretext for further militarization of the region. Now, it's true that the US is experiencing significant domestic social decay under decades of neoliberalism, which is being exacerbated by a radical Republican administration that is gutting every public institution and service while stuffing even more cash into the already overfilled pockets of the super rich through massive corporate tax cuts. 
the levels of inequality and domestic social in the, in the, in the U.S. are very serious. Uh, to give you just one indication, according to the most recent global health surveys, the U.S. is witnessing a decline in life expectancy for the first time in nearly a quarter of a century. America is also the first high-income country to see its adults, on average, no longer growing taller. Trump wants Americans to stand tall, but they may very well be shrinking under the kinds of social policies his administration is accelerating, and they're also getting sicker and they're dying earlier. So domestic social decay, it's serious. It could have uh, long-term implications uh, for the US, especially if it results in unleashing extreme right-wing forces that capture American political institutions and take the US and maybe the rest of the world down a path of self-destruction. Let's hope that doesn't happen. Um, but nevertheless, at present, uh, domestic social decay isn't translating into a decline in American hard power, which is really concentrated in the military and the corporate sectors, which are doing just fine. Uh, in comparison to China specifically, uh, the US lead in military capabilities is really just extraordinary. America currently outspends China three times to one on defence, and that's excluding most of the cost of US nuclear weapons programs, which dwarf China's relatively small deterrent force. But it's only when you consider the cumulative gap in military spend, uh, spending over the past uh, couple of decades that you really get the full picture. The US has outspent China militarily by more than $7 trillion since the year 2000. And that's not including spending on the wars in Iraq and Afghanistan. In other words, the US has established an extraordinary lead in accumulated military assets over several decades. Moreover, the US far outstrips China in terms of its sharing capability of power projection platforms, America leads in every indicator of cyber power, and the US far exceeds China in terms of combat readiness. It's worth noting that while the American military has been virtually in continuous war since 1945, none of China's present troops have ever been in combat which I think is telling about the degree of militarism in both countries. Finally, not only does China have to contend with the US military, but also US regional allies like Japan, South Korea, Taiwan, which are formidable powers in their own right. In the final analysis, China still cannot command major portions of its own near seas. Yes, the US can no longer cruise along China's coastline virtually risk-free as it once could, but why should that be considered a threat to the US that needs to be countered? The US literally poses an existential threat to the Chinese Communist Party, while China poses a threat to US military control in China's own air and sea approaches. That's the lopsided nature of the threat facing both countries. All, the, all of this alarmism about China being on the cusp of imposing a new Monroe Doctrine in East Asia, I think is just pure fantasy. Now, many analysts predict that China will overtake the US as the world's biggest military spender sometime in the future, maybe somewhere in the 2030s. But that is highly contingent on China overcoming some serious structural economic issues. And China still has massive internal security costs which soak up over a third of its military budget. Uh, in comparison, the US spends just 1% of its defence budget on homeland security. The US is in fact several times wealthier than China in absolute terms, and that gap is increasing, not decreasing. Because China must increasingly spend its wealth on massive internal welfare and security costs, and it is far less efficient. An American worker produces, on average, seven times the output the average Chinese worker does. But even if China were to overcome all of these domestic issues, and it's certainly possible, there is a more serious structural constraint that inhibits China's uh, capacity to challenge US hegemony and which derives from China's integration into the US-led global economy. 
China's growth model is very different to that of other East Asian powers like Japan or South Korea, which followed the classic paths of development by protecting domestic firms to create globally competitive national champions. China is the first major country to rise in the era of American-centered globalization from the 1990s onwards, and the first where growth has been predominantly driven by the globalization of Western transnational corporations, which have shifted their production networks to China. The extent to which China's export-driven boom is dependent and driven by foreign capital is astounding and unprecedented. And the implications of this for China's economic independence and capacity to challenge US hegemony are profound. Foreign invested enterprises, two-thirds of which are fully owned and one-third joint ventures, command a staggering 85% share of China's high-value exports. And this share has not dipped below 80% for the previous 15 years. In contrast, China's privately owned enterprises have struggled to surpass a 10% share, with only a handful of overseas success stories like Huawei and Lenovo. Meanwhile, the share of high-value exports by China's state-owned enterprises has collapsed to just 5%. After two decades of China's capitalist rise, only two Chinese companies make it into the top 10 exports by value, Huawei at number five and Sinopec at number nine. The rest are all foreign-owned enterprises, mainly Taiwanese firms that are in fact subcontracted out by Western uh, transnationals. Moreover, foreign firms not only dominate China's chief export sectors, but increasingly lead in numerous sectors of China's increasingly important domestic market. The Chinese Communist Party has been trying to address this dependence by compelling foreign technology transfers via joint ventures. Should we be worried about that? (laughs) Maybe it was in response to that. Should should I continue or should we be concerned? No, are we happy to continue? Ah, oh, oh, okay, really, all right, okay, I can keep going there. Continue, okay. Yeah, 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 I'm fine, I'm fine, I'm not, I'm not nervous. Um, okay, so I was just thinking of everyone else. Um, So the the Chinese Communist Party has been trying to uh, address this dependence uh, by compelling foreign technology transfers via uh, joint ventures and other mechanisms too, of course, like cyber theft of intellectual property, which has been one of the major gripes of the US for several years, even though they themselves paid no attention to intellectual property laws when they were industrialising a century ago. Um, but there have been some notable successes uh, in this regard. Um, you know, China's high-speed uh, rail industry, uh, stealth fighter jets, uh, renewables, smartphones, and several other sectors. Um, China has managed to at least dominate its, only domestic, uh, its own domestic market in some, although not all, cases. However, in a, in a variety of other sectors, operating systems for smartphones and desktops, for example, automobiles, Ethernet switches, airplanes, medical supplies, supermarkets, consumer goods, fast food, and several other sectors, the Chinese market is still dominated by foreign firms, the internal domestic Chinese market. This is not what you would expect for an emerging economic hegemon. This structural economic power that the US derives from China's extraordinary integration and dependence on US global capitalism is a formidable hurdle for Beijing to overcome in order to challenge US hegemony. When the US Department of Commerce in April 2018 suspended the supply of key chips to China's second largest and the world's fourth largest telecommunications company, ZTE, it instantly paralyzed the company's operations until Trump later repealed the ban. We're seeing a similar attempt now by the Trump administration to prevent China's most 
a successful global technology company, Huawei, from building a global 5G network infrastructure. And while Huawei's uh, global competitiveness does signify China's growing economic power, the fact remains that US transnationals continue to dominate the most dynamic and influential sectors of the high-tech global economy. Computing, telecommunications, aerospace, pharmaceuticals, business services like accounting, advertising, consultancy, engineering, computer programming, and of course legal and financial services. In total, Amer American transnationals enjoy unrivaled supremacy, leading or dominating in over 70% of the major sectors of the international economy. This is the outcome of decades of neoliberal globalization, deregulation, privatization, financialization, corporate cross-border mergers and acquisitions and so on. More broadly, it's the result of the concerted efforts of the US military and treasury departments since the end of the Second World War to create a global capitalist order under American influence and leadership. And just as during the Cold War, when the US engaged in threat inflation regarding communism to justify its global geopolitical and economic agenda, or in the post-9-11 era, when the threat of terrorism was used as a pretext to assert US hegemony over the oil-rich Middle East, it is once again engaging in threat inflation regarding the rise of China to pursue its hegemonic ambitions in the most significant and dynamic region of the future global economy in the Asia-Pacific. Unfortunately, Australia is not only buying into this threat inflation, in many respects, it's leading it especially with respect to the so-called threat of China's, uh, Chinese political influence. And that's uh, coming to the end of the program. Uh, lots of things to think about there. Uh, that's, that's a wrap, Marcus. It is, yeah. <laughs> yeah, uh, the most interesting thing today, I reckon, was uh, the talk with Sonia about what's going on in uh, Broadmeadows and the uh, land grab for pr uh, public land for Yeah, the sell-off of a public reserve where, where a local rugby club uses it and the council yeah, sees fit to transfer that land or to sell the land off to uh, NRL Victoria for a rugby uh, centre of excellence. Yeah, and to bypass actual democratic process and then to pretend that they did consult with the community when, in actual fact, the plan that they consulted with the community about was a completely different plan. Uh, yeah, the part How that's do they most lie disturbing. straight in bed, Marcus? Uh, well, the part that's most disturbing is another reserve on Johnson Street was earmarked for Rugby Victoria. And, oh, they said, no, we don't, yeah, we don't like that land. We, wanna, we want this other reserve. Yeah, there must, be, <laughs> there must be something. Beside the pollution in the water, there must be something else because all across... Victoria, anyway, these sorts of things are happening uh, as we've been, we've already reported what's going on in Footscray and they're fighting back against the soccer. I mean, and down along the uh, coast near Warrnambool and uh, going towards Port Ferry, the racing industry wants to take over the uh, foreshore for their galloping horses, when in actual fact, private businesses have capital and they should be building their own private facilities, not stealing public land. Well, I'm, I'm a ratepayer in the Hume City Council and I don't pay rates for it to go to corporate interests to set up an elite training and sports facility that quite clearly locals aren't going to have access to. The local youth, they're already in a disadvantaged area, high unemployment, aren't going to be given opportunities from what I can read. Uh, and it's rugby. Goodness gracious. Anyway, that's the end for us today. 
We're going to go out with the perfect answer, which is from a band called Paper Planes. And coming up next is Asia Pacific Currents. Always good information from Asia Pacific Currents. Catch you next week. listening to a 3CR podcast produced in the studios of independent community radio station 3CR in Melbourne, Australia. For more information, go to allthews.3cr.org.au.